Welcome to the 10-12, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference, part of the Land Grant Gauntlet, your source for all things Big 12 football. I'm your host as always, Philip Slam, and thank you for joining us for our 31st episode. We are continuing bowl previews this week. We've got two great ones. We're covering the Bush Light Bowl. I'm sorry, the Alamo Bowl. We might as well call it the Bush Light Bowl. Let's go to Camping World Bowl preview. We're going to talk some basketball with a great first-time guest. Before we get all that, quick update. The changes are still coming. Very, very excited about what is happening in the new year with the 1012 podcast. Not only is the name slightly changing, it'll be TEN12 instead of 1012, so it should be easier to find. That change will come on Twitter and on iTunes and everywhere else. But not only will we be on iTunes, we'll now be on Google Podcast, Google Play, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Facebook, and TuneIn. Now, here in another week or so, we're going to have to have you follow a new channel. You can't just change a name on iTunes. iTunes doesn't like it. They're a little bit picky. So there will be a new iTunes channel for the new show with me and my future co-host, Chris Ross. We'll have that up for you very soon. Keep an eye out for it on iTunes. That's 1012, T-E-N, the number 12. Have a little teaser up for you. And it's going to go full on into the new show in the new year. One other update. We will have a show next week. We're going to wrap up our bowl previews next week. I'm getting those done early so that I can enjoy the Christmas break. But we will have a show. We'll get you a Liberty Bowl preview, an Orange Bowl preview, and a Sugar Bowl preview. All that said, are we finally going to get an 18 playoff? It sounds more and more like it's actually going to happen. Now, not only do you have Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby talking about it, Big 10 Commissioner Jim Delaney says it's time to have a conversation about expanding the playoff to eight teams. We knew it was inevitable. We're in year five. Next year's year six. It makes a lot of sense to do it after year six. As many people have mentioned, at the end of year six, all the different bowls who would be hosting semifinals will have done so. It's a perfect year to expand. But are they really going to expand, or is this all just a red herring? Are we really going to get expansion after six years? Or is Jim Delaney really, really smart? Look, I want eight teams. I want five conference champs. I want two at-larges. I want a group of five teams. I want to see undefeated UCF in there against... They would have been the seventh seed this year against Clemson? Come on, UCF-Clemson? That would be a game. OU-Georgia again? Yes. Give it to me. But do we really think that's going to happen? Or is Jim Delaney really, really smart? And he's positioning to make the change to force the ACC and the SEC to play nine conference games. The ACC and the SEC have benefited from playing eight conference games, four non-conference games. They have yet to miss the playoff. If you think that having that scheduling advantage and that the SEC scheduling FCS teams in the second to last week of the season isn't benefiting them, you're crazy. Because the belief was that you're going to have to increase the difficulty of your schedule. Big 10 went to nine conference games. Big 12 has nine. Pac-12 has nine. They're all scheduling a 10th Power 5 team in their schedule. So while those three conferences are playing 10, sometimes 11 Power 5 teams in a season, teams like Alabama are playing nine. I mean, give it to Clemson. They play two non-conference Power 5 games a year. They play South Carolina. This year they played Texas A&M. The ACC is not very good this year, but that's not the point. The point is that they benefit from their schedule. And if I'm Jim Delaney, it's ridiculous. It is. It's absolutely ridiculous. Does Jim Delaney really want to expand the playoff, or does he want to force the hand of the other two conferences and create unified 
scheduling practices. I think it's required. I think it should happen. Everyone should play the same number of conference games. Everyone should play the same number of non-conference games. Everybody should be required to schedule the same number of of non-conference power games. Something is going to happen. Changes in the air. I don't know what that change is. Maybe it's an 18 playoff. Maybe it's unified scheduling practices. I don't know. Maybe it's all of it. But I know this. Whatever it is, it needs to happen. Because what's happening right now just doesn't work. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But it can still be better. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for eight. It's going to happen eventually. Let's stop dragging our feet. Just make it happen. But something's happening. All right. Three great interviews, like I said. Kicking things off with Brian Ralph of the website Busting Brackets. We are talking Big 12 basketball. We are going to touch on all 10 teams. Then, Camping World Bowl. Bart Keeler from Smoking Musket. Paul Esden from Inside the Loud House join me. We're going to compare offenses. Talk about which team is more emotionally invested. Discuss players sitting out bowl games. It's a very big topic, and it's something that's going to continue to happen. And we're going to make predictions for the game. Then... Alamo Bowl preview. This is going to be a big fun game. Big fun game. Alamo Bowl, Bushlight Bowl, whatever you want to call it. Jared Stansbury from Cyclone Fanatic. Jeff Neusser from Coog Center. Join the show. Talk about advantages and disadvantages in this matchup. Compare the two quarterbacks, two really good, really underrated quarterbacks this season. Talk about this potential playoff expansion, what it means for Iowa State and Washington State, two non-Blue Blood programs, and get predictions as well. It's a really good interview. I'm really excited. I hope you're excited. I think you're going to like it. Let's get to it. Yeah, we still have bowl games, but let's just call it what it is. It's college basketball season. Uh, It's leading up to my favorite time of the year, March Madness, which is the greatest single sporting event there is. Sorry to everybody else, but it is the best one. So it's time to finally start talking some Big 12 basketball for real. Very excited to have Brian Ralph from Busting Brackets on the show for the first time. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a pretty good weekend for the Big 12 so far. That a very nice yeah. Saturday. Kansas knocking off Villanova. OU beating USC. There were some really good wins. Let's start with this. What is your impression of the Big 12 as a whole so far this season? It's not as strong as it was last year. I think last year was just another demonstration of how really nine of the ten teams in the conference were capable of beating anybody at any time. This year, that's not the case, but it's still um, strong at the top, not as deep at the top as it was last year, but very strong at the top. I think that second tier is really strong, and there's a good probably six teams, seven teams that are looking at um, legitimate NCAA tournament hopes. Of those, obviously Kansas, the, the cream of the crop, as usual. Um, everyone kind of thought Kansas State would be the team that could challenge them for the Big 12 crown. And we're going to talk about Kansas State in a minute because they've got big news. But who do you think so far has the best chance of maybe challenging the Jayhawks? Well, I, I'll, I'll start by saying I don't think anybody's going to end up knocking off Kansas. I think they're too good too talented and can do too many things, present too many matchup problems with guys like Deidre Lawson that it's just not going to happen this year. However, if somebody was to do it, I think it would be Texas Tech. They play Virginia-like defense. They're as good on that end as anybody in the country, maybe other than Virginia, but are, I think, comparable on that end of the court this year. They get enough offense. Jarrett Culver has turned into a real star 
this year. He dropped 30 points, I believe, uh, on, on Saturday. So he's really coming into his own. Uh, Matt Mooney, who's a grad transfer from South Dakota, has helped them in that regard as well. They're a team that they're a defensive first team, but unlike a lot of defense first teams, they don't struggle to score. It's not their forte, but offense isn't an issue for them. So I think if Kansas maybe hits a slide in the middle of the year, defense travels. And so Texas Tech's going to be able to play well on the road in the conference. If anybody's going to knock off Kansas, it will be Texas Tech. I forgot they got that Mooney kid on the team this year. Mm-hmm. He was he was really good for South Dakota. He's going to be a lot of fun to watch as the season progresses. The other team I think is most surprising to me so far is Oklahoma. Um, mm-hmm. He lows Trey Young. And and last year's team wasn't really very good. Let's be honest. Like it no. was Trey Trey Young and 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 everybody else. And yet somehow this year they're playing really well. They've beaten Florida. They've beaten Notre Dame. They beat USC. They got they had a double digit loss to Wisconsin, but Wisconsin's really good. What is it about this OU team that they just seem so much better than they were last year, despite losing a guy like Trey Young? Well, they have a, a majority of their players back, and all of those players took leaps forward. And anytime you have that, uh, they they played well at the beginning of last year too. The supporting cast did. That's why they ended up being ranked in the top five, and then they sort of fell apart in conference play once the weaknesses were able to be exposed. And I, I think that whole cast that's back has now is one uh, another year comfortable because they've played together for for a year, so they're more comfortable playing together, more experienced. Everything, everything that comes along with that, which helps. I also, I don't know if I'm ready to completely buy in yet. Those wins are certainly nice, and wins I don't think they would have had, they would not have had last year without Trey Young. Uh, but Florida is another team that has not played up to par. USC has been terrible at, at times this year. Notre Dame probably is going to make the tournament this year. So those wins are nice in terms of elevating Oklahoma above where we thought they were going to be. I think it puts them certainly in tournament contention, probably right there on the bubble. But I don't think they're go- they're going to be ranked this week when the a new AP poll comes out. But I don't think they're going to be a top twenty five like team all season long. Let's just talk a little bit about Kansas State. You know, they they ended their two game losing streak, got a nice win on Saturday, but had a a couple of losses. Dean Wade, their star player, uh, who missed the tournament last year. Uh, Seem to have hurt his leg. I haven't heard any clarification about how long he's going to be out. Uh, what updates do you have as far as him, and how big of a loss is this going to be for the Wildcats? They're, they don't expect it to be something that's that's too, too long, I don't believe. Um, but it, it's certainly not a good thing for them. I, I think they're going to be a little bit like Syracuse in terms of the fact that they played really good on defense. They really struggle on offense, and the struggles on offense are going to hurt them during the regular season, as we've seen a couple times this year already. They've lost a couple games that they really shouldn't have lost. And the same thing goes at Syracuse. Both teams have a lot of guys back from teams that made long NCAA tournament runs last year, and I think we were all expecting them to make those next steps forward. But Kansas State hasn't gotten any better offensively. They'll they'll beat you 61-60, to 60, but if you can get up in the mid-70s, I, I don't think they're able to score with you on a consistent basis. And because of that, we're going to see them lose a couple of those games, and the regular season record might not be as good as, as we all expect it to be. One of the most interesting and, and impressive wins from Saturday was Baylor going on the road and beating Arizona. Now, this has been a Baylor team that up to this point hasn't been that good, and, and I certainly wouldn't have picked them to win that game, especially not the way they did. Mm-hmm. How much of this is, and I, and I was reading a few things, 
but that Baylor started the year a little bit banged up and are finally starting to get healthy. So is is the win over Arizona a sign of things to come from the Bears moving forward, or was it just kind of a one-game situation? It's a sign that we should pay attention to them because they were really injured at the beginning of the year. McKay Mason played really, really well in that game. It was the first non-conference home game that Arizona had lost since 2011 uh, when they lost to San Diego State. So it was a, it was a long time coming and a, a really big win for a Baylor team that sort of needed something to build on and, and gain, gain some momentum end of non-conference play going into conference play. That said, Arizona's not a great team this year either. They played well in Maui, but lost a couple games to good teams, even though they played well. And outside of that, hadn't really shown much. They went and lost at Alabama, which is another team that was has not been great this year. They've lost to the likes of Georgia State and a couple of the major teams. So Arizona losing to them was alarming. And then obviously, anytime you get a road win over a, a power conference team like Baylor did against Arizona, it's it's noteworthy. And certainly something Baylor fans should feel really good about. But I don't know if it's an indication that Baylor has suddenly turned a corner. I think we'll find that out over the next couple of games. But I don't necessarily think that it's a, a reason for Bears fans to think, okay, we're back to being the top half of, of the Big 12. So I figure Baylor will finish in the bottom half. Um, mm-hmm. Oklahoma State as well. Oklahoma State, to me, this season looks like Iowa State did last year. Um, there's talent there, but they're super, super young. I think Oklahoma State is the youngest team or the least experienced team in the Big 12 and sub 300 as far as experience nationally. So it's going to yeah. be a rough year in Mike Boynton's second season for them. As we're talking, they're actually playing Nebraska and Sioux Falls would be a very nice win for them kind of to end that losing streak. There's... There's two teams I can't quite figure out. West Virginia is one of them. You know, Baylor's (laughs) excuse was that they were beat up. They're getting healthy. Oklahoma State's is that they're very young. What is going on with West Virginia? Well, West Virginia is the same team they were last year, just without Javon Carter and Daxter Miles, which is unfortunate for West Virginia because they relied on Javon Carter and Daxter Miles to provide pretty much all their offense. Nobody else has stepped up to replace those guys. So they'll still play decent defense and, and pressure you and force turnovers. But on the other end, they don't have anybody who can consistently put the ball in the basket. So they'll, they'll turn you over 20 times in a game. But then instead of scoring 30 points off those turnovers like they may have last year or the year before that, they're only scoring 10 just because they don't have anybody who, who can score. Because teams in the Big 12 are, are more used to facing that press, it's not going to be as, as much of a um, factor as it has been in the non-conference schedule, when West Virginia always plays teams that aren't used to seeing that, there's always a bit of a, a regression for West Virginia when they get into Big 12 play. And that's just really bad news for West Virginia fans this year because I, I don't think they'll finish above the top three in the Big 12 with the way they're playing right now. Yeah, those those three feel, Baylor, OSU, and West Virginia feel like probably the bottom three teams of the conference. I think Iowa State might finish down there. I know their record looks really good right now. They haven't had... a really difficult non-conference schedule up to this point. The other team I really don't understand is is Texas. This is a squad mm-hmm. that has some nice wins, beat Arkansas, beat North Carolina. The Michigan State loss is understandable. But then the losses to Radford and VCU just are confounding to me. What is it what what is this Texas team? Are they good? Are they bad? Or are they just somewhere in the middle? It's classic shock of smart, right? 
They have a team that looks like they should be good and has the talent to be good, and sometimes they play good, and other times they just don't. And there's no real rhyme or reason for it other than the fact that they've been inconsistent the entire time Chaka Smart's been the head coach. And I think that's something Texas fans have come to expect, and we've seen this year that, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change much. Yeah, I've I've talked with some people in the past, and, and how much of it is just Chaka Smart's a really, really good recruiter and an okay coach? That's certainly a part of it. Uh, his offense is not necessarily one that's uh, that you would put on a, a clinic with. His, his X and O's on the offensive end are not great. He relies on a lot of uh, players to make individual plays, which sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Things can get a little reckless, and, and that's when we see them go off the rails and lose to teams like Bradford. But um, this is really, I, I think, a make-or-break year for, for Shaka. I think, you know, Texas should have been better than they have in the past couple of years. He's been saved from a lot of the hot seat talk because they've made the NCAA tournament as, as a bubble team. And it really, despite having talent that should put you way off the bubble and well into the tournament. So this year, I think if another season like that comes along, I think we'll hear a lot more about uh, Shaka being on the hot seat going into the 2019-2020 season, going into next season. If they were to somehow miss the tournament this year, I think you may start to here are some rumors about that as we get into February and then March. All right. Last question. I want to talk about TCU a little bit because mm-hmm. it's another team where I, I always wonder how good they really are. You looked at them last year. They had a very nice season last year. Um, they, they bring back a lot of the guys who are impact players. Their record is really nice, but I'm still not sure how good. And this is the problem with non-conference all the time. Unless you just have mm-hmm. a really loaded non-conference schedule, it's hard to tell just how good you really are. Last year, they I think they won their first 10, but they hadn't actually played anybody. Is How good is TCU, and, and what do you think their ceiling is this year? They're going to be a solid middle-of-the-road Big 12 team. They're going to hold serve on their home court most of the time. They're going to probably pull an upset against a team that finishes top two, top three in the Big 12 at home because they're a good defensive team. Jalen Fisher, I think, is one of the more underrated players in the country. And when he's healthy, TCU has been a top 25 team over the past two years. And when he hasn't been, that's when we've seen TCU really struggle. So his health is, again, going to be key for them. And as long as he stays healthy, they're going to be a team that's going to make the NCAA tournament no problem and and finish around the the five spot in the Big 12. Uh, if he's not healthy, we could see them spiral sort of like they did the the second half of last season. So your your projection would be about six Big 12 teams make the tournament this year, or do you think we can get as many as seven? Uh, I think it depends on the wins that team six and seven have in the conference. I think I would I would probably say six for the Big Twelve and that seventh team. You know, did, were one of those conference wins over Kansas? Who is that team, and and who were those non-conference wins they had? Because we've seen from the selection committee the past couple of years, they value who you beat or who you can have shown you can beat more than who you've you've lost to. So good wins are better than bad losses. So de- depending on, on who that team is and who they beat will depend on if they get seven in or if it's just six. But I think six is the number to shoot for for the Big 12. And for Oklahoma State, uh, good losses are better than bad wins. So everyone just remember, yes. remember that. That's more important. Um, so with that in mind, those six, I would project probably Baylor, OSU, and West Virginia don't make it. Who's that fourth team you think doesn't make the tournament? That's where it gets tough because I think we say Kansas is in. I think we say Texas Tech's in. I think we say Kansas State's in. 
I think we say Texas probably flirts on that bubble. I think Texas can be one of those teams that's there in the in the six seven range, maybe five range. But I, I think we say TCU win. I really think it might be Oklahoma, just because I I, I for whatever reason am still not a total believer in the just talent they have on that team. And when it gets into Big Twelve play, they they have some good wins as you mentioned, which may help them in the bubble conversation because Florida is going to be on the bubble, Notre Dame. I think best case scenario for Notre Dame, Notre Dame is going to be on the bubble. USC, best case scenario, they're going to be on the bubble. So if that were to happen, it would certainly bode well for Oklahoma having wins over those teams. But I, you know, you put them against Iowa State. When Iowa State gets Lindell Wigington back, I think they're a better team than Oklahoma is. I think Texas on talent is a better team than Oklahoma is. I think TCU is a better team than Oklahoma is. So I would probably say Oklahoma as that, as that seven team, but. You know, it, it, a lot of it depends on health, too, for some of those other teams that we just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, OU's got a couple more chances for some nice quality non-conference wins. They've got uh, Creighton and Northwestern still on the mm-hmm. schedule before Big 12 play. So those will be big for the Sooners. That Creighton game is going to tell us a lot because I think Creighton is a, another step up from from those wins that they have that we've talked about. I think Creighton's another step up. So if they were able to win that game, I'll start to believe in them a little bit more and maybe we'll look at the Big 12 getting seven teams in. But I, I think right now... I'm still a little unsure about the Sooners. All right, Brian, man, you have been awesome. I appreciate all of the insight today. Do me a favor. Where can everybody follow you and your work? You can follow me on, on bustingbrackets.com. I'm one of a couple writers, one of many writers we have on that website, all of us, um, a, a lot of other good writers on there as well. Uh, so that's bustingbrackets.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at bralph33, at B-R-A-U-F-33. Brian, thanks again for coming on the show. We're absolutely going to have you on again throughout the season to get some more of this great insight that you've given us today. Enjoy the season, man. I appreciate it. You too. When the bold matchups were announced, this was the one I was the most excited for. Now, it's lost a little bit of the luster, the couple of players announcing they're going to sit out, but it should still be a really good matchup. We're previewing the Camping World Bowl. West Virginia versus Syracuse have two great guests. First one, to welcome back Bart Keeler from the Smoking Musket. Bart, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. You know, it's the holidays. There's no reason to be to be glum or sad right now. Exactly. Eat some Christmas cookies and have a merry time. I've had too many of those. Um, so. <laughs> also very excited to welcome a first-time guest. Paul Esden of Inside the Loud House to bring some Syracuse perspective. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, fellas. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's start with this. These are two teams uh, with really good offenses. Uh, but the last everyone really saw of, of either team, you know, for from a national standpoint for Syracuse, it was watching the Orange get blown out by Clemson. Uh, for West Virginia, it was back-to-back losses to OSU and OU. So I want to start really because... the I want to know what to expect from the offenses in this game. And Paul, I want you to go first because I don't know how many Big 12 fans have really gotten to watch Syracuse. What should they expect to see in this game? Well, uh, make sure that they do their pregame stretches and pregame warmups because a lot of hamstrings are going to be pulled in this game. It's Orange is the new fast. That's the moniker at Syracuse. This is a high-flying offense led by their senior quarterback, uh, Eric Dungy. He is uh, playing, obviously, his last game in the Camping World Bowl. It is the first time uh, he's playing in a bowl game, first time for Syracuse since 2013. 
Eric Dungy for the first time this season started and uh, finished every or started every game this season uh, for the Orange. And he's still here, obviously, uh, for the bowl game. That's the first time he's done that. He's been, I guess, injury prone, for lack of a better term. This is just a guy who has a, a viciousness, a, a relentlessness. He he just has this energy to him uh, of he has the mindset of a linebacker playing quarterback. So he during the first couple of years of his uh, career here at Syracuse, he would look for contact. If he could go out of bounds, he'd see a linebacker and stay in bounds and go and try to run the guy over. And, uh, you know, I think he's gotten a lot smarter. Obviously, his body has changed. He came here as a skinny kid from Lake Oswego in Oregon to Syracuse. And he's really uh, dedicated himself to the uh, weight room and worked out his body and got himself to a position uh, where he can be at this point and survive through the ACC schedule. So Eric Dungy is a freak. Uh, They've got weapons all over the place uh, from wide receivers, tight ends, running backs, and a little bit of a special sauce, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. Syracuse has two big uh, transfers, uh, one uh, at running back from Oklahoma, Abdul Adams, and a wide receiver, Tristan Jackson, from Michigan State. According to the transfer rules, they had to miss this season, but with a little bit of a twist, they are available to play in the bowl game, which could add some even more punch and juice to this orange offense. I forgot he transferred from OU to Syracuse. I knew he left OU, but I forgot he transferred to Syracuse. What what do you think uh, adding those players could do for Syracuse in this game? Well, I mean, the talent is obvious, obviously, when you see the schools uh, that they came from. The big thing here is obviously Abdul Adams and Tristan Jackson, the wide receiver and running back, respectively. They haven't they've practiced with the team, but they've been doing scout team with the orange. They have not been doing actual practice reps. So the unique thing here is with what, uh, well, we're 10 days away from the bowl game. But in general, just the weeks leading up the 15 practices uh, Syracuse gets uh, for uh, this game. It's like another extra spring practice uh, for these guys to get that many practices leading up. I mean, they can bring explosiveness. Abdul Adams uh, is a freak of nature. Tristan Jackson, we got to see him at the spring showcase back in March. That's where we our only real opportunity to, uh, to see them on the football field. And they're explosive athletes. Currently at the position, uh, Syracuse has a senior in Dante Strickland. He's a ground and pound guy uh, who can really grind it between the tackles. They do have a bit of a a uh, scat back option in Mo Neal. He's uh, really led the team this year in rushing, and he could do a little bit of everything. But Abdul Adams, I think, is the perfect combination of both. And for Tristan Jackson, he is just an established wide receiver from a big-name school. And who Syracuse had to lean on this year is Jamal Custis, a senior wide receiver. He's in his fifth year uh, here with the Orange, and they haven't had a Steve Ishmael or an Amba Adetawo guys over the last two years that uh, broke uh, college football. When you look at the receptions, yards, and touchdowns, both of those receivers uh, were able to produce. And in general, for Syracuse, uh, they've had those broke single season records. Both those receivers. We didn't quite get that from Jamal Custis, but he's a guy who can uh, impact the game. Six foot five, two hundred fifteen pound plus guy. So uh, the two established guys can bring a little bit more juice potentially if they can uh, get the playbook down in time. So Syracuse potentially adding players. West Virginia going to be without two quarterback Will Greer, Lyman. Yadni Kajust, both going to skip this game to prepare for the NFL. Bart, how is that going to affect this offense, and, and what should we expect from West Virginia in this bowl game? Yeah, I don't know if there will be a definite uh, misstep um, in terms of preparation for the game. I don't think that Holgerson or Spavital will deviate from what they would want to do throughout the entire season, and, and that's run the ball effectively and, and throw the ball to keep – teams you know running all over the place Uh, I think you still have 
outside of, of Will Greer, you still have all of your offensive talent available to you. And, you know, I think both both Holgerson and Spavital would agree that Captain Jack Allison is a pretty darn good quarterback. Uh, he's pretty highly rated out of high school. And uh, we got him, you know, from Miami just because he didn't quite fit what Mark Richt wanted to do down there. But um, I don't think you'll see a different type of offense or style of offense or approach to offense. You may see uh, a little bit more of the run game early on just because I think that will be an emphasis that the, the coaches will want to kind of put to anyway. I, I think Dana and, and especially uh, in bowl games likes to try to get out there and run the ball early, but I, I don't think it'll be that big of a difference. I think maybe you'll see some of the playmaking ability that Greer had that Allison doesn't go away. Um, you know, he, he, he isn't the most elusive player, but then again, we haven't really seen him as much this year, have to uh, have to make those elusive plays. He hasn't really played um, any team of note. So I don't think it'll be too different from what it'll look like now, how efficient and effective it is. I, I, it's, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I have high hopes for Allison. He, he clearly has the ability to make a lot of throws. Uh, it's just a matter of, is he ready to take the reins and lead the offense like Will Greer was able to do? Spavital, offensive coordinator, took the Texas State head coaching job. So is he actually going to be coaching in the bowl game? So this is actually a topic of discussion over there at SmokingMusket.com where I write. Um, all reports say he is coaching the game. We have no clue how true those reports are. <laughs> uh, he he so he said he will stay on through the bowl game. He, they said uh, he will honor that commitment. Um Assuming that he will probably call plays, uh, we we don't know exactly. Uh, the the last we heard is that he's going to coach the bowl game. Um, it is a little bit of a weird predicament, and and it kind of struck me as weird. Um, I think early on he said, "Yeah, I'm going to stay there because he thought you know we'll be in the Alamo Bowl. I'll have Will Greer to coach one last time, and then you know we we get into the Camping World Bowl. Will Greer is not going to play." And I'm very curious to see what the actual offensive coaching staff will look like the day of the game. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Dana Holgerson is calling plays. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Spavital's calling plays. I think at this point, we're not quite sure what they envision the game day to be. Uh, the main reason I say I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Holgerson starts calling plays is obviously Spavital won't be there next year. Uh, but with that, you're not going to have, I don't know if it, is necessary to have Spavital and Allison kind of get that chemistry together from a play caller and a quarterback. Uh, Spav and Greer had a great chemistry together, um, similar to honestly what I saw Holgerson and, and Skylar Howard have during his couple years at the helm of our offense. And it, it, there is a real nice understanding and rapport and and uh, juju, if you will, between the two. And I'm just not sure if that's something that they are going to focus on for one game. But like I said, Spavadol is going to coach apparently, so we we shall see. There's a lot of questions and unknowns here with this WVU team going into this bowl game in the heart of the uh, swamplands of Florida. So when it comes to bowl games, you know we, we like to look at who's more talented, who we think is better. But at the end of the day, sometimes it's more about who is emotionally invested in the game, who cares more about being there. So I'm Bart. I'm going to let you start first. Which team do you think is more emotionally motivated, and what do you think would be West Virginia's motivation for winning this game? Well, I'll tell you, as a college athlete, 
you're always motivated to play a game. Um, and I think the motivation for West Virginia is to get that bad taste out of their mouth, losing what should have been a win against Oklahoma State. I think somehow the Big 12 cheated us or or somehow, I, I don't know how that happened, but we decided to just give Oklahoma State a victory in that game. And then the complete uh, just letdown that was OU. Um, you know, you played so well on offense to, and you come up short. Um, I think your motivation has to clearly be not losing three games in a row and, and getting that bad taste out of your mouth and, and finding, uh, more importantly, finding your way onto the roster for 2019. A lot of these, especially on defense, there there's going to be some holes open up. There are some seniors leaving, but there are also a lot of underclassmen, juniors, sophomores, and even freshmen who are going to be battling for playing time. And, I, and that starts now. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it says a lot about your character when you can do your job and do it to the best of your abilities when you, you know, seemingly could care less. Um, so I think the the motivation for WVU, especially emotionally, is just to not lose three in a row. And then from a, an individual standpoint, it's to make sure you have a spot on the team for 2019. Um, like I said, I mean, really, other than Greer and Kajest, everyone else seems to be ready to play this bowl game. And I don't think Holgerson wants to lose three in a row to Syracuse and lose three in a row to end a, ser- a season. Paul, kind of same question. What team do you think is more motivated and what do you believe Syracuse's motivation is in this game? You know, it's hard uh, not to be biased or anything being a Syracuse Sports Talk radio host uh, for the last couple of years covering uh, Syracuse for Inside the Lighthouse. And I feel too often we say, oh, what team wanted it more? But really, I mean, Syracuse is the team. When you look at everything with this game, obviously uh, the Syracuse team hasn't even been to any bowl game, no matter dot com bowl, this bowl, that bowl. I I mean, they have been to no bowls since 2013. So obviously this team has been starving uh, for something like this and the players. Uh, I, I mentioned Jamal Custis, the senior wide receiver before. I mean, he's he's been at Syracuse for five years. You know, I don't know if he's trying to be a doctor, but regardless, he has not been able to get to a bowl game. He's been here five years, and finally he's getting to a bowl game this season. And obviously Eric Dungey, a lot of people know kind of the – what he brings, the passion he brings, uh, that's that's obvious in any of the national primetime games that Syracuse has played, whether it's Clemson or or any of these big games that have made it on ESPN. This team wants it. And uh, Dino Baber's getting a contract extension uh, just about a week ago. And uh, for this team to possibly get to 10 wins. Now, the difference between 9 and 10 may only seem like it's one, but for Syracuse, this would be the first time since 2001 this team has gotten to 10 wins. I think that's a palpable change, not only uh, for the recruits that are going to be watching down there. Syracuse is a, a str- has a strong recruiting uh, base in Florida in general, but to be playing this game in Orlando, to be playing in this Camping World Bowl that uh, routinely goes to the second best team in the ACC, which Syracuse was uh, this season based on their record. Um, this is a huge opportunity for the Orange. They want it just as bad as anyone. Eric Dungey wants this just as bad as anyone. And I think it goes to show you a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a difference here. Will Greer is skipping this bowl game because it's what meaningless. Call it what you want because it's not the college football playoff, and he has NFL aspirations. Eric Dungey, who also has NFL aspirations, isn't as highly touted. Obviously, he hasn't even been invited to the Reese's Senior Bowl yet, along with all the other quarterbacks that have. So for Eric Dungey, this means life or death. And that's what he's really uh, had that mentality his entire Orange career. So I think in terms of Eric Dungey in particular, it means the world to him and the rest of these players it does. They have been starving 
for this moment. And Dino Babers uh, has made a lot of proclamations over his time at Syracuse. He said this would be a year they would remember and talk about forever. Uh, I think that means a bull win. We have talked a bit about Will Greer. And I do want to get your opinions on on what seems to be a growing trend of players skipping bowl games. I mean, we're seeing it more and more every year. I don't think it's going to stop. And I think more players are going to continue to sit out lower tier bowls from power five teams that have NFL aspirations. You know, there's, there's kind of two sides of the argument. There's a lot of different opinions. Paul, I'm going to let you take this one first. Where do you sit on the debate of players skipping bowl games? And uh, I'd be more than willing to hear your guys' take on this, but I, I believe that there's a different standard for quarterbacks. Um, Will Greer is the first quarterback that I know of that's uh, openly skipping a bowl like this that's not for injury or anything, just purely 2019 uh, draft preparations. You know, it started with the uh, Christian McCaffrey's, the Leonard Fournette's, and it is what it is. These players got to look out for themselves. Uh, my dad is a diehard Notre Dame fan. I watched that Fiesta Bowl a couple years ago where Jalen Smith uh, tears his knee up. There's nerve damage. It took him forever to get to where he is today in the NFL with the Dallas Cowboys, and he's doing wonderful work in the NFL and getting back to the player he was at Notre Dame. But he's a guy who was a locked-in top-five pick in the draft because of playing in what, again, was a meaningless bowl game. It's not the college football playoff. I think the playoff is different. I I don't think we're ever going to see players sit out of the college football playoff. If they're in, I don't see any player sitting out of that with an opportunity for a national championship. But for a dot-com bowl, random bowl, I I just don't – I think I agree with players skipping out on the bowl – and as a former football player, it hurts me because, you know, it, I feel like and it's easy to say from our positions. But as a former football player, to me, I would never want to quit on my teammates. I don't think I could look at my teammates in the eyes and just say, hey, man, I'm worrying about me on this one. It, it would be hard for me to make that distinction. But I fight for the players. But I do just believe that the quarterback is different. It's hard for your senior leader to suddenly be out because the entire dynamic of the game changes. Uh, Jack Allison uh, for West Virginia, you know, who knows what's going to, you know, They're going to run the same system. They're going to do everything the same. We'll see the effectiveness, as we've kind of been talking about on the show. But the whole dynamic changes. Will Greer was fourth in Heisman voting. He was the preseason uh, guy for all the quarterback awards. This guy is the the, legitimate star. And then you look at Yanni Kajust. He's a star offensive lineman. He's going to be a first or second round pick in the draft. I mean, this changes the dynamic. But I just so long story short, I'm cool with it. Players got to watch out for themselves. But I feel like the quarterback is where we get into weird territory. This is this is a territory we're not used to. And I don't think he's going to be the last quarterback to ever set out of a bowl game. But I think that changes the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, it is. It is weird seeing a quarterback do it. It's just the first time we've really seen that happen. And I think you're right. It, it's not going to be the last. But it is. It is odd seeing. A quarterback and completely different than watching a defensive tackle or an offensive lineman or even a running back or a wide receiver do it. Bart, uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I fully support Will Greer not playing in this bowl game. Um, I wouldn't want to have to play against Syracuse. It's kind of a joke that the ACC can put their second best team in a bowl game and the Big 12 has to put their third or fourth best team in there. Uh, and that's enough for the hot takes right now. But uh, no, seriously, I support Will Greer doing this. I think there, it's it's not worth him risking what could be five million dollars a year for the next five years of his life and potentially more to take care of a wife and kid that he has to continue a legacy that he's worked so hard to build and 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 honestly rebuilding a legacy that he has done a good job of rebuilding here at wvu um more importantly i think the first domino that fell was yadney sitting out and that's his that's his you know best offensive lineman 
And Will Greer is a guy who the last thing he needs is an injury of any sort in a bowl game, a, a, a you know, a glorified exhibition with a sponsor and a trophy attached to it. Um, it's not worth him missing out on a career. And, and I don't blame the kid one bit. I don't blame any kid who wants to work to look out for what could be, you know, life changing money for him, for his, his immediate family, his extended family and the, his family down the line. But more importantly, I, I think people miss kind of the, especially some WVU fans who I've, I've battled with on this. I think they're missing the point that, uh, you know, if you have, if, if Dana Holgerson is this offensive guru and a quarterback savant, if you will, he hasn't really put a, a quarterback in the NFL and, and I'm not going to count Geno Smith for a number of reasons. Um, and, and if you do, that certainly wasn't a very successful quarterback in the NFL. If you want to be a, a school that can, that can recruit top level quarterback talent, which West Virginia has struggled to do, you need to put a guy in the NFL and say, Hey, that guy right there playing for that team, making that amount of money that came from our school and me specifically. And that's a huge recruiting tool that I don't think people really uh, factor. I think nowadays, especially, you're looking at kids who, especially four and five stars, they're looking to make money in the NFL. Now, we all understand that that's incredibly difficult. And the likelihood of you making money in the NFL or any professional sports league is incredibly slim, no matter how good you are. But that's an incredibly useful recruiting tool that Holgerson and whomever the next offensive coordinator will be can use to bring in more top level quarterback talent, maybe a, you know, a transfer like Justin Fields. Ha ha. Um, it, it, to me, Will Greer missing a bowl game. The kid broke a finger that required, like, I don't mean broke a finger. I mean, his finger was freaking sideways. It, it required, gross. it was, it was terrible. It required surgery and an entire off season basically to recover and, and re and reclaim what he had. No, I have zero problem with him missing a bowl game for something as serious as what, I mean, honestly, any, any sort of injury could derail him and, and send him down the draft pecking order. But it, it, I would never, I would never fault a kid for wanting to go get that bread and making sure that his family was taken care of. And again, selfishly, I get it. You want to watch the kid play in a bowl game because somehow you're owed as a fan to watch a kid play in a bowl game. But I'll tell you what, I don't think his teammates seem to care too much. Um, I know, you know, David Sills and, and, and company will be, you know, a little remiss to not have him throw you know, Greer throwing the ball to them. But no, this is something that if you're not going to put real value on bowl games, like we used to, if you're going to have a, a, some, you know, six bowl games that somehow matter more than others, and then a couple others that matter the most, then you can't look at this and say, well, he, he sat out the camping world bowl and, oh, well, darn, he's not playing in a bowl game that, you know, ultimately isn't going to do that much for the program, to be quite honest. I mean, we're not in a position where we need to win a camping world bowl to somehow put our, our, our you know, be back or, or be relevant again or, or even feel good about it. I mean, the season, unfortunately, was kind of shot when we lost to OK State and then definitely shot when we lost to Oklahoma. So th this is the right decision from Will. This is the right decision for Kajust. This is the right decision for any number of players who want to sit out a bowl game that is not a New Year's Six or a college football playoff. Yeah, I think there's a good point there 
that fans don't think about when, when they get upset that a player skips the bowl game, which is, you know, if they have a real shot at the NFL and, and, and being an NFL player for a long time, there is more value in Will Greer becoming a star or a starting quarterback or just a player in the NFL for West Virginia than there is if West Virginia wins this bowl game. Because next season's the next season, and what happened in the bowl game doesn't matter. But Will Greer having an impact in the NFL is it can have a bigger impact for the school than winning this game. So I I, I, I think, look, I, I'm fine with it. I'm an OSU fan. Justice Hill's sitting out. I'm disappointed not to get to see him play again, but the guy's going to go make some money. He's going to go play in the NFL. I'm excited to watch him there. And I'm not going to blame a kid who wants to skip a, a non-New Year's Six Bowl or you know playoff to go get ready for the NFL, especially if they have a real shot to play in the league. If they're not projected to go in the league, that's I mean that's whatever you want to do. But if they have <laughs> yeah. a real shot, go for it, man. Absolutely. Well, West Virginia had West Virginia had five guys on the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl team last year, right? Like that is a huge selling point for anybody. You had defensive backs, you had uh, receiver, you had running backs. Like that's huge. And so I, I that's just kind of my point to all of this is y- you can sell a kid on making it to the NFL, not winning a Camping World Bowl. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. All right, prediction time, Paul. I'm gonna let you go first on this one. What is your prediction for this game, including your final score? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I was looking forward to seeing Will Greer and Eric Dungy, two senior quarterbacks, compete in an old Big East rivalry. Uh, This had a lot of juice, obviously, now that Will Greer's out, Yanni Conjust is out. It changes the dynamic a little bit. And really, uh, as Dino Babers talked about earlier today when we were talking to him about it, um, you know, it's hard to prepare for a guy that you really don't have a lot of tape on. He played, what, maybe 60-something snaps uh, so far this season. I mean, there's not a lot of tape on him, so it's a surprise. So it's kind of a guessing game here. I'll, I'll assume, based on uh, you know how much West Virginia uh, relies on the quarterback and how important the quarterback is to making audibles at the line of scrimmage and changing things up and their importance to the offense, I'll assume that Jack uh, Jack Allison, uh, based, Jack Allison, excuse me, based on everything uh, in terms of his recruiting, how highly touted of recruit he was from Miami to come over here that he can still, uh, be effective. I don't think he's going to be Will Greer, especially with everything Will Greer's been able to do. I'm going to take Syracuse in this game. I think it's going to be still high scoring. I still believe that West Virginia is going to be able to put up points. And I believe, and I believe before this Will Greer news that whoever had the ball last might win this game. We'll see if that's still the case with Jack. Give me something in the ballpark, uh, 42, 35 Syracuse. Bart. What's your prediction, including your score? Yeah, the, the the X factor here in this game, I think, is is Eric Dungy. I mean, you look at uh, quarterbacks that West Virginia has played this year that are even the slightest bit mobile. We haven't done very well. Uh, specifically, some like seven foot tall, long legged kid running around on us for an entire second half from Oklahoma State. Um, and, and and Kyler Murray had a great game. Uh, even even Ellinger. And and Purdy had had decent outings against this West Virginia defense as, as mobile quarterbacks, and um, you know I think Dungey definitely fits that mold. Um, now I will say I think this is a game that might be fourteen to ten at halftime, and then takes off in the second half. Um, I just I don't know if West Virginia's defense will recover enough to be able to fully contain Syracuse's uh, offensive attack, and and. Furthermore, I don't think West Virginia's offense will be as efficient as it has been to allow that defense to make mistakes. Now, 
the the key here is that if West Virginia's defense can force a couple turnovers, then maybe this changes. But I really see this as Syracuse putting about I don't know thirty points, forty points on in the second half. When in about uh, I'll say forty two to thirty, they get the win. Yeah, I have a man. I was I was all over West Virginia before the Wilger decision. I just I have a hard time seeing West Virginia win this one now. But I'm I'll tell you, I'm still really excited to watch this game. You guys have both been great. Bart, do me a favor. Where can everybody follow you and your work? Yeah, so I write for The Smoking Musket. You can find us at smokingmusket.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at Smoking Musket. You can follow me on Twitter at BartimusPrime19. Uh, right now, it's a little weird. My soccer season is over. Uh, Atlanta United won a MLS Cup championship, so uh, you will you can see a lot of tweets about that. But really, right now, I'm, I'm tame. Uh, we'll see how it goes on uh, December 28 and how much I've had to drink for that. Um, but... You can follow the Smoking Musket uh, podcast at West by Pod Virginia on Twitter, and you can subscribe there on iTunes and all your favorite pod catchers. Great. Paul, where can everybody follow you and your work? Of course, you can follow me at BoyGreen25. Uh, that's my uh, radio name is uh, Boy Green. Uh, I'm on the score 1260 here in Syracuse uh, from 10 to 12 in the mornings and 3 to 6 p.m. in the afternoons, five hours a day. And uh, you can catch my work uh, for all things Syracuse, football, basketball, everything in between for Inside the Loud House, at LoudHouseFS on Twitter. And uh, I'm looking forward to this game too, boys. It should be a good one in about 10 days here. You guys have both been fantastic. I want to say thank you again for coming on the show. Good luck to both of your teams. and Enjoy the bowl season. All right, thanks. thanks. Thank you, Phil. Very interesting matchup in the Alamo Bowl this year. Iowa State, who will probably flood that stadium with a ton of fans, and Washington State, who's bringing Mike Leach back to Texas. This is going to be a really fun one. I'm really excited to preview this game. Two fantastic guests joining the show. First up, Jared Stansbury from Cyclone Fanatic back on the show. Jared, how are you? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Also excited to welcome Jeff Neusser on the show for the first time from Coog Center. Jeff, welcome. Thanks. So this is an interesting game, and from one angle in particular, um, for Iowa State, they're going to be playing a Washington State team whose offense, you know, was kind of born in the Big Twelve, so that, and is still run a lot. So Iowa State's fairly familiar with it, but I'm not sure how familiar Washington State will be with what Iowa State runs. So I want to start there, and Jeff, I'm going to start with you. What kind of a disadvantage or, or advantage do you think Washington State has going against an Iowa State team that it, it maybe it's not as familiar with its offensive schemes? Well, I think you know the the Pac-12 is pretty varied in its uh, you know in its types of offenses. You know, you see a lot of different stuff. I mean, about the only thing that WSU doesn't see in the Pac-12 is itself. <laughs> you know, a team that throws the ball you know eighty percent of the time or whatever. Um, but obviously we see that every day in practice and, and really we see, you know, the rest of it, you know, we see the gamut, um, you know, ranging from, you know, pretty much, you know, pure power teams, um, you know, such as, you know, Stanford and, and Washington really is largely a power team, um, to, you know, very, you know, spread, spread type teams, you know, Kevin Sumlin, uh, you know, down in Arizona or whatever. So, so really you see sort of, you know, everything in between and, you know, sometimes you even get a mix of the two. You got, that's kind of what Oregon's doing at the moment, uh, with Mario Cristobal, where they're kind of trying to do this, you know, power oriented spread style, 
which is kind of different. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I think, I think they'll be ready to, to handle to some degree, um, whatever it is that, uh, that, that Iowa state is, is going to throw at them. And, you know, I think, um, you know, maybe if they were playing a team from a different conference, you know, they, they've really struggled with the big 10 the last couple of years with, with Minnesota, um, and with Michigan state. And I think if we're talking, you know, conferences that are sort of, you know, reasonably closely aligned stylistically, I mean, I think, you know, the big 12 and the pac 10 are probably it. So, um, so, you know, I think, I think Wazoo will be ready. And plus, you know, defensive coordinator is really excellent. Um, he's been around for sure. Jared, kind of the same question. What kind of advantage do you think Iowa State might have being fairly familiar with what Washington State likes to do? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be it'll be good for Iowa State just because of the fact that they're they're familiar with the the general style of the teams that really like to spread you out and you know try to utilize the the entire field. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the offenses that run that air raid style in the Big Twelve, it's not really the true air raid. Where you look at you look at Washington State and they're you know, the passes that they're throwing, they're not throwing it 50 yards down the field or anything like that, like Oklahoma or West Virginia that you think about where they're trying to hit on big plays all the time. And uh, they're they're much more methodical with as much as they, they throw the football. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that there's advantages to it just because you're used to seeing teams uh, spread you out and really try and, and make you have to defend the entire football field. But it's just one of those things, too, where you it, – it, it isn't a true advantage just because, you know, it is different than what most any other school in the country does. And uh, it'll be an interesting matchup just because I think that, you know, it uh, it, it kind of plays into the, um, you know, one of the strengths of what Iowa State does and, you know, the strengths of its defenses with, with the, the secondary with Brian PV and DeAndre Payne and all those guys that are expected to be healthy for the game. And, uh, I mean, I think it's going to be a really good matchup. I think it's really interesting just the way that those two teams match up from the Washington State offense to the Iowa State defense. I want to talk about both quarterbacks for a minute. Brock Purdy, Gardner Minshew, both had really good seasons, kind of out of nowhere. You know, Brock Purdy is a true freshman. He took over a little bit later into the season and, and was fantastic. Gardner Minshew... Uh, transferred into Washington State, uh, they the Cougars weren't expected to have a good season yet they did because you know primarily I think because of him. Jeff, I'm going to start with you again. What should fans expect to see from Garner Minshew, especially fans who may not have have seen him yet this year? A lot of moxie, man. He is uh, he's just he's just kind of something else uh, in terms of personality and leadership. Um, he exhibits a, a really astounding, and I mean, at this point, it's not astounding because we're, you know, 12, 12 games into the season. But um, from the, the moment he stepped on campus as a grad transfer, so, it, you know, any listeners who don't know that, he was a grad transfer um, from East Carolina, um, didn't have a ton of success there the last couple of years after transferring from a JUCO, really sort of lost his job to an incoming true freshman. Um, the coaching staff sort of made it clear that that he was going to have to recompete for his job against a true freshman and um, decided to go looking elsewhere and, you know, eventually lands at Washington State and, um, you know, really just from the moment he stepped on campus, took the helms and, and uh, you know, and, and really directed a program that was in need of some direction. Um, you know, probably a lot of people know this. The presumed starter, Tyler Holinsky, died by suicide last January, um, really rocked the team, rocked the program. Uh, Minshew showed up and, and really just with the proper amount of uh, both deference to the situation, but also 
um, enthusiasm for the opportunity was, was really able to rally the team. And I think that's, that's his strength, man. I mean, there are a lot of guys who can throw the ball. I mean, we, you know, we had a guy the last three years, Luke Falk, who could really throw the ball, but, um, th- this is just different. He brings a different vibe to the team. Um, there's a belief, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big chemistry guy or momentum guy. You know, I, I tend to, you know, favor the analytics of situations, but there's definitely an X factor that he brings, um, that causes a belief in his teammates that really they can tackle anything. They had a number of fourth quarter comebacks this year um, against Utah, against Cal, against Stanford. Um, he's just a guy who really just doesn't ever quit. And uh, and that's, I think, what people see. Even if Iowa State makes life a little bit difficult for him, um, he's just really going to keep fighting, keep battling, uh, take care of the ball, be precise with where he throws it, and, and really pick his times um, to take some shots. Jared, Brock Purdy kind of surprised everyone by being – Really good once he finally got a chance to start. I've had a chance to watch him a few times. He's been fantastic. What what should fans expect to see from him in this bowl game? And and kind of how would you describe this season of his? Yeah, I mean, I think he brings a lot of those same kind of intangibles, you know, that he talks about with Gardner Minshew, where it's just there's a there's a moxie about him, kind of an air about him that's a little bit different than what other quarterbacks Iowa State has had in the last couple of years. Um you know, have possessed. And it's just, uh, he's, he, he's as confident as any Iowa state quarterback as I've seen in a really long time where it's just, he isn't afraid to, you know, get into somebody's face or to, you know, lower his shoulder and try and run somebody over if he's out running, running the football. And, uh, he takes a lot of hits and, uh, and you know, he's just, he, he always is popping back up and, uh, is always ready for the next play. But, uh, uh, he's changed that team that, and that entire offense just since he took over, uh, you know, four games into the season. He's seven and one after being pro- Iowa State's primary quarterback, and uh, and he's been really good in basically every single one of those games except for the Texas game, which is that one loss that he had as the team's starting quarterback. And um, I just get, I you know, I think that people are hoping to see continued growth out of him and uh, continued progression in, in what his career can be as a Cyclone because I think that you know if he can can build on what he's done already uh then he can uh you know he he's on track to have a really special career at Iowa State I'm going to sidestep the bowl here for a second because I think this is something that could really impact both Iowa State and Washington State now neither team won the conferences this year but both were in the running late into the season had they won their conferences especially with Washington State it didn't feel like they were going to be able to get up high enough into the playoff rankings partially maybe due to the non-conference schedule and I really think part of it just because it's it's Washington State and it isn't it isn't Washington. And I and I feel the same way for Iowa State. Had they had a really good year and won the Big Twelve, did they have a real legit shot at the at the playoff because of their name? So now the talk is that the playoff may expand to, to eight teams soon. And I want to get both of your takes on on how you feel on the playoffs current model and, and if you are for going to eight. And Jared, I'm gonna let you take this one first. Yeah, I mean I think I'd be for expanding it and it doesn't I mean that that really doesn't have that much to do with Iowa State because until this year and I mean I guess maybe even somewhat last year the the idea of Iowa State ever even being in that conversation was kind of a a pipe dream of sorts but um you know I think that uh I think that the eight teams is is a good move you know it allows you to get the all five of the power five champions in and you know get some at-larges and I I would say that you got to get one uh, automatic berth to a, to the top group of five team, but that's just, you know, that's, that's kind of how I see that. But, uh, I think that it would definitely benefit Iowa State just because the chances of them 
unless they're undefeated, you know, getting all the way up into that top four, whether they're 11 and one or 12 and one or whatever, are, are it's not very high. And, um, and that, that just has to do with the, the history of Iowa state football that, you know, if you want to call a spade a spade is, is pretty much terrible. And, uh, and, and that's just kind of the way that it is. They don't have much name recognition on the national scale, similar to the way out Washington state is where Washington garners a lot of the headlines in that, uh, in that portion of the country, you know, Iowa does a lot of the same things, uh, here in Iowa with the, you know, the way that this state is split. And, um, they've obviously earned that with having a, you know, a lot of success in, over the years in the, in the sport of football. And, um, but yeah, I think that if it went to eight, that would definitely benefit Iowa State. I think that it would benefit college football, and uh, I think that that would be the right move. And you know, honestly, I think that it could probably even go bigger and uh, and and continue to to be a benefit as well. Jeff, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think eight's a good number. Um, you know, I I, I kind of went back and looked as you know as WSU was getting kind of down to the wire. This was you know before uh, before the disaster in the Apple Cup, but before that point. Um, you know, we, we were really looking hard at, at what it might take to, to get the Cougs in. And, um, you know, what really sort of became clear to me is that, um, it, that it's maybe not so much about name brand recognition, but it's really about where you start, right? It's, you know, if you start in the top 25 and the higher you start, um, the more likely you are to be regarded highly. It, it almost doesn't matter to a large degree what you do. Um, with that, I think Oklahoma was a great example of that and not, not because Oklahoma was undeserving or anything, but, you know, over the last few weeks where, you know, the, the committee chair gets on TV and talks about, you know, why this team's there, that team's there. Um, you know, like every time he talked about Oklahoma, it was kind of hilarious. He was just sort of extolling the virtues of their offense. And then at one point he even said something like, um, you know, I mean, their offense is so great. It even overcomes their terrible defense. Like I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, it's like, how is that a virtue? (laughs) Right? Like, like, are are we, you know, if we're going, okay, well, I mean, you know, aren't you supposed to be good, just good, you know, and are because we're both sides of the ball part of that. So anyway, it just, there, there becomes, I think a lot of confirmation bias and how they select the teams and where you get, you know, these situations where it became clear that look, I mean, even if Wazoo had won out, um, I, I think it's pretty obvious from looking at what happened that they would have been left out, that they would have been on the outside. Um, and that is sort of, I think, as much a function of their preseason ranking, which was nothing and, you know, unranked, not even a vote, you know, in the in the others receiving votes category. And so people sort of look to confirm their preconceived notions. And so I think eight is a good number if we move to a system where, um, you know, conference champs get in um, and then maybe a couple of at-larges. I'd be totally in favor of still of giving an automatic berth to the highest group of five. Um, I kind of like that idea just because, number one, everybody has a path to the championship. And then number two, um, you know, you know, say the group of five team is weak. Um, you know, that's as close as you're going to get to rewarding the number one seed for a good season. So, um, so yeah, I'm on board with that, you know, put in the conference champs, um, because college football is so regional, it's very difficult to compare, you know, I mean, the PAC 10s reputation was basically toast when Washington lost to Auburn on the first weekend, which I think is sort of ridiculous. So yeah, get put in the conference champs, let them, let them battle it out, put in a couple of at larges for teams like, you know, Georgia or whatever, and, uh, and go from there. Yeah. I'm with you guys. I'm all for eight. My one caveat on a on a group of five team is it's not just so much about the best one. They've got to at least be ranked in the top fifteen. I don't I don't need a nine and three Boise State who won 
the Mountain West in. Like if if one goes undefeated or has a loss and has a good resume and won their conference, then great. I don't I don't want to just put one in arbitrarily. I will say that I actually did go back and look at like because I we kind of did this at our site. Like we kind of talked to each other. Like what would that actually look like? The group of five teams actually weren't. Um, you know, obviously the last two years UCF was, was up there, but but really they weren't like ridiculous, you know, like 22 ranked teams. Most of them were, I think the worst one was maybe 19 or 18, something like that. So anyway, not so ridiculous that, um, you know, to, to, to make, a, make a sham out of the deal. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, back to the bowl game. Let's make some predictions. Jeff, I'm going to let you start this one. What do you expect to see in this game, and what is your final score prediction? Man, I have such a hard time predicting bowl games. Um, you know, Wazoo has tended last couple of years to play pretty crappy <laughs> in their bowl game. Um, you know, and then even the year before that, they didn't play great um, in the game that they won down in El Paso. So, you know, it, it's it's so tough to say. I know that Wazoo has kind of changed up their bowl prep this year. <clears throat> I will say that, you know, Ohio State's defense does give me some pause um, but I do think that, you know, Washington State's defense is going to be able to hold down Iowa State. I think uh, Tracy Clays is an excellent schemer. Um, I know that, uh, you know, it, it, it's an offense that doesn't run the ball real great or at least hasn't over the course of the season. And so um, that's really where it starts with Wazoo. And if they're able to do that um, and shut that down, then then they really are able to cause problems for teams uh, by putting them in long passing situations. They were one of the leaders in the Pac-12 in sacks. So um, even though I'm not exactly sure how Wazoo's offense is going to perform, I know there's going to be a sense of urgency with Gardner Minshew, who's never played in a bowl game before. Um, I know he's got a real salty taste in his mouth from the way the Apple Cup went down. So I think the offense will be okay. Um, I think the defense will play very well. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe like, you know, Wazoo by a touchdown or something. I don't know, like like 33 to 27 or 26 or 20, I don't know, something like that. All right, Jared, same question. What do you expect to see in this game, and what is your score prediction? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a pretty fair assessment. Um, I I think that it's going to be one thing I do know is that Iowa State is going to be fired up to be there. You know, um, this is by far the best bowl game that Iowa State has played in in the modern era. Uh, Iowa State's fans have gobbled up tickets at, uh, at an absolutely insane pace. Uh, there's going to be a lot of cardinal and gold down there in San Antonio, and, um, and I know that uh, you know people are really excited about this. But I think that Iowa State's defense, John Haycock, is uh, as good as a, as a, as they get, you know, in uh, in the Big 12. That uh, it's Amy and some of those wide open offenses, and um, you know, if Iowa State is, it kind of comes down to the same thing for Iowa State offensively. If, it, if they're able to establish the run with David Montgomery. Uh, who is probably one of the most underrated players in college football, or at least one of the most under-talked about players in college football. Uh, if he's able to get something going, that really opens things up for Iowa State's offense to where they could potentially have a pretty big day. But uh, I think that Washington State will probably win this one. I think the line is, is about perfect. I think it's like four and a half right now. Uh, I think that's about absolutely perfect. I'd, I'd say somewhere like, like 42, 38 or – uh, 38, 35, somewhere right there in that range. Washington State winning. All right. Let me just say, you guys have both been fantastic. I would I would cheers a bush light to both of you for your performance today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, now, that's the part where we might actually start fighting over who's actually got a greater claim to bush light. I know uh, <laughs> the Alabama Bowl started sending out tweets nodding towards Iowa State's bush light, and I know there were some of our fans that, you know, they didn't take kindly to that. I know that we uh, – 
when we were in Memphis last year, we drank that whole town dry of Bush Light. So uh, <laughs> we've uh, we've we've built ourselves quite a reputation when it comes to drinking Bush Light. All right, <laughs> you guys have been awesome, uh, Jared. Do me a favor. Where can everybody follow you and your work? Yeah, they, uh, they find me on Twitter at Jared Stansberry, uh, and then you can find me on CycloneFanatic.com as well. Jeff, same question. Where can everybody follow you? Yeah, just KookCenter.com, and then on Twitter at KookCenter. You guys enjoy the game. I think it's going to be a really good one. Good luck to both of your teams. Try and and, and share a bush light. Don't don't need to fight over it. There's plenty to go around, I'm sure. And uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you. Thanks, man.